0: Hello and welcome to what is now episode three of the HD Lockdown Pod. Uh, today I'm pleased to be joined once again with uh, by Mr. Lawton. Hi. Uh, Mr. Patterson. Hello. And a special appearance live in the, well, studio, I guess, uh, by Mr. DeSalvo. Hello. Right, today on the show, um, we've got Mysterious Country, the return of Mr Lawton's fantastic uh, new game. Uh, we've got a little bit of history, uh, looking at the Vietnam War and why it uh, came to an end in the way that it did. Uh, we've got a new feature as well, the 90-second challenge, more on that later. Um, a return to Geography Corner, of course. Um, and and Mr DeSalvo will regale us with some uh, Easter traditions and superstitions as part of language liaisons. And we'll finish off, as ever, with some questions from your fine selves. Okay, um, so uh, Mr Lawton, how's it going?
1: Uh, it's going good, thank you. I'm keeping you busy, you know, just uh, pottering around the place. Uh, that's about it, to be honest.
0: Nothing exciting going on in your world at the minute?
1: Oh, nothing donated to charity, you know. Got on board the uh, hype and ran 5K and... five k and
0: yeah, five pounds for five k. That's the, the new <sighs> initiative, isn't it? I feel um... like
1: I've lost five pounds after it
2: anyway.
0: <laughs> well, that's that's the aim as well, isn't it? Um, Mr. DeSalvo, what's been going on in your world?
2: Um, Well, trying to decorate a kitchen and uh, finally got the grey paint delivered so we can um, make a start. And I've uh, now learned to play a few more bars of my first ever piano tune. So, um, yeah, it doesn't sound anything like the original, but uh, I'll get there. Uh, Yeah, other than that, um, I am now on a diet myself detox diet after all the hobnobs uh, that i've eaten so there's no more
0: the lockdown does it add a few i think a a few extra pounds there's too much far too much sitting around going on in my house yesterday i decided to try and bake for the first time a banana bread loaf it it collapsed on me disastrously um it didn't look anything like what it was supposed to look like
1: it looked a bit suspect to be honest i'm not gonna lie
0: but but it tasted Well, it tasted okay. I'll I'll, I'll go that far, but um, my partner wouldn't touch it, I'll be honest. I I had to eat it all myself.
2: I have a good recipe, if you need one.
0: I'll I'll let you know. Um, (laughs) Mr Patterson, how are things with
3: you? Yeah, not bad. I was supposed to be in Barcelona this week, um, which obviously has not happened. Um, So we um, did a bit of a tapas sort of afternoon slash day um, on Saturday, which was good. Um, And then since then, for my sins, I have been running and I have been gardening. So clearly, um, I'm sort of slipping into insanity during this. You're a changed
0: man, Mr Patterson. I know. Yeah. You'll start doing some marking soon, won't you? A few more weeks of lockdown before that starts, I think. I think so. Um, A word before we move on to the main part of the show to a shout out to Christian uh, for the fantastic theme tune that he's put together for us, which we'd all heard at the start of the show. Um, also, I'd like to ask you all to uh, continue to spread the word amongst your know, fellow students and so on about the show. Um, any questions or any comments you've got, please do continue to send them in uh, to any of us via email. They'll all make their way into the show or by the form that I've been sending out. Um, another kind of a reminder as well about uh, Easter homework, there's been a little bit of work been set for you. Uh, if you're not sure about any of it, if you've got any questions, again, please do send us an email. Um, And that's all obviously due to be uh, in and sorted by the start of next week. Also, potentially, I'm looking at maybe doing a little bit of a bonus uh, podcast on uh, the life of Theodore Roosevelt. Last week, I did the first part uh, of his life during the main pod, and it's potential that I'll do uh, the second part uh, very soon. Uh, Mr. Lawton, any update on the HD lockdown quiz?
1: Um, apart from the technical issues, um, everything's ready to go. Uh, we're just waiting for responses from the powers that be with regards to technical things at BOA. And as soon as that's all sorted, all the information will be released.
0: Okay, so once we're back to school, keep an eye out for that. Or I say back to school, uh, back to work in theory next week at the start of the new term. Um, okay, so uh, that brings us to an end to the notices and the end of part one. We'll be back in a few moments with part two. Okay, welcome back to uh, part two. And it's that time again. It's Mysterious Country. I'm
1: using random data, using varied data. All random facts, don't judge me. You can guess it when it's your time. I said, ooh, mysterious country. No, I can't stop until you are right. Ooh, mysterious country. What a tune. So, yeah, welcome back to Mysterious Country. Um, Same rules as last week, but seeing that Mr. Desalvo is new to the game, I may as well go through them for everybody at home and himself in particular. So, um, you're going to get clues for a mysterious country. Uh, There'll be seven clues maximum. Um, Each clue is a round and each participant in the game can have a guess per round. Now, because there are now three of you and not two of you, it'll be a little bit harder to differentiate between who is having a guess uh, because it's first come, first serve on the guesses. I would like it if you uh, actually shouted your last name. So if Ike was to go, you'd say Ike, uh, Pat, or Desalvo, and then I'll be able to hopefully tell who is having the guests, and I will go to them first. Um, there's only three countries this time, so we could end up with a tie of one each. I hope it doesn't come to that, because I'll have to think on my feet very quickly and have some sort of way of defining a winner, because at the end
2: of the day, it's all about winning. Um, so let's, are we all okay with the rules there, Mr DeSalvo? Um, except that I need to shout DeSalvo instead of Des for some reason so oh, it's well, a lot longer I don't know I'll get a buzzer I'll get a buzzer <laughs> feel free to go gas uh, I'll, yes. I'll, I'll take it that's
1: fine um, so here we go uh, mystery country number one so the first clue is this country was originally a Spanish colony uh, founded by uh, Christopher Columbus no less and then it became a British colony
3: Ike Ikelson Barbados Patterson. Pat. Pat, apologies, lot. Um, Jamaica.
1: Jamaica do what? Very good. Oh uh, no, no. Do, Saber, I have to do guess. you have to leave this round? No you don't You don't have to. here we go. So um, clue number two. the mate this is the major nesting ground of the leatherback turtle. It's a major nesting S-
2: ground.: Yes death. Galapagos, Galapagos, whatever you call it. Gal- Galap- Galapagos. Islands, Island, uh, yes.
1: Yep, nope, and uh, just so you know, uh, we've only got uh, countries that are recognised by the United Nations. The, the Galapagos Islands would not be recognised
0: on the road. Ike.
1: Ike. Uh, Belize. Incorrect.
3: Mm.
1: Pat, do you want this round or do you want to leave it?
3: Uh, Cuba. Never been British, don't worry.
1: Incorrect. Uh, The capital of this country is the Port of Spain.
3: Ike. Trinidad and
0: Tobago.
1: Ike wins. Ike wins. Well done. Trinidad and Tobago is correct. Uh, The other clues that were going to come were um, the national dish is crabbing uh, Callaloo, which is a green vegetable dish, apparently. Uh, Trevor McDonald was born there. It's got two islands and they played England in the 2006 World Cup.
0: Uh, Dwight York, but there we are.
1: Nothing about or Jason Scotland. uh, Last time Scotland went to a World Cup, eh, Mr. Patterson? Country number two. uh, It has as many nationals living inside the country as it does outside of the country. Ike. Mr. Ike.
0: Republic of Ireland.
1: Incorrect.
3: Dead air, guys. Dead air. Next clue. Next clue. clue. I don't even know what that clue means.
1: uh, that clue <laughs> means that uh, there are many people who are, like, British nationals living inside Britain as they're all living outside Britain. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. Anyway, Still um, good. So, uh, so, um, the next clue, uh, Shakespeare's Twelfth Night is set here. Shakespeare's Twelfth Night is set here.
0: Oh, death.
1: death! Death. Switzerland. <laughs> Incorrect.
0: Ike. Italy, incorrect. Pat, incorrect.
1: Turkey, incorrect. Um, so next clue: um, the two boys and girls' names that are most common in the country are Luca and Mia. Luca and Mia. Pat, Paterson, Poland, incorrect.
3: Mike, Denmark,
2: Patterson. incorrect. Mm-hmm. Des, Portugal. China.
1: Incorrect. So the next clue, it was part of the former
2: Yugoslavian Republic. Des. Des um, Serbia?
1: No, I- I've narrowed. Eichelstern. Croatia. Eichelstern wins. Eichelstern wins. Um, so the other clues are going to be um, So it's famous for its waterfalls and its national parks. Um, 2001, Wimbledon Wimmer was, uh, shock Wimbledon Wimmer was a national of this country. Okay, uh, Mysterious Country number three. So uh, the national anthem is on the back of that $1,000 note in micro font.
3: Pat, so did they use... Yeah, Pat. Australia. No, but
1: uh, it has narrowed it down to countries that have got the denomination of... uh, No, I've got nothing here. Okay, second clue. This country comprises of 64 islands. Pat. Patterson.
3: What? Philippines.
1: Incorrect. Uh,
2: Indonesia.
1: Incorrect. Des. (laughs) Des Falklands. (laughs)
2: Falklands.
1: <laughs> incorrect. I- incorrect. And, and once again, the Falklands is not recognized uh, independent state by the United States. Maybe
2: it's uh, somebody recognized them.
3: <laughs> Argentina certainly <laughs> does. <laughs> um, so, um,
2: home, uh,
1: this, this country is home of the Hug Me Coca Cola machine. It's a Coca Cola machine whereby you get a Coca Cola if you go up to it and give it a great big hug. To Salvo.
2: Japan? But they, they don't, don't use dollars.
0: No, um,
3: uh,
0: uh, South Korea,
3: Ike, South Korea, uh, um, Pat, Pat, pa, um, New Zealand, no, <laughs> no, do they use dollars, <laughs> Kiwi dollars,
0: do they have a hugby Coca-Cola thing,
3: <laughs> uh, right, clue
1: number four, um, this country pioneered the first, and Formula One night race, Ike,
0: Singapore?
1: It's correct. It's yeah. a clean sweep for Eichelston. oh Clean sweep. Well done. Uh, so, the other clues are going to be uh jury and fruit is not allowed to be eaten at public uh, transport. It smells like rotting flesh. It's just awful. It's one of three city states in the world and it's also known as the Lion City and it's famous for its lion prawn statue, Singapore. Uh, well done, Mr. Eichelston, on your win there. And that's two weeks in a row. Thank uh, you very much. next week, uh, the challenges uh, will uh, come along and dethrone you.
0: Yeah, I, I will return next week to defend, defend my crown. Thank you very much, Mr. Lawton, as ever. Thank you very much to, to uh, Mr. Patterson and Mr. DeSalvo for putting up such a fight. Um, we'll return next week with another game of Mysterious Country.
1: Ooh, mysterious Country no i can't stop until you are
2: right
0: okay that brings us to the end of part two we'll return in just a few seconds with part three welcome back to part three now part three this week we're going to be doing a little bit of history as ever And uh, this is in response to um, actually some questions from some of our Year 11 students, actually, uh, talking about a course that we were studying. So um, those of you that are doing Year 11 History and those of you that are in Year 12 and 13 who did uh, GCSE History here will remember a Conflict Intention in Asia course, which looked at the Korean War and uh, the Vietnam War. Now, sadly, we didn't get a chance to actually tell the final part of the story. And a few of our Year 11 students have been in touch asking for a little bit of a discussion on that very uh, subject. So for the uninitiated, those of you that have never studied Vietnam before, what we thought we'd do is start off with a little very short potted history of the Vietnam War and how it gets to the point where uh, America ultimately is defeated. So in 1945, post-World War II, the world is very much divided up into the communist sphere and the capitalist sphere. Essentially the capitalists are led by the United States and the communists are led by the Soviet Union, or today we'd refer to them uh, as Russia. The USA were opposed to communism were concerned about the spread of communism as a um, political and economic ideology. It was seen as a threat to the political and economic freedoms of America and of um, America's allies. And they developed this idea of the domino theory that essentially communism was growing and was spreading across the world that could be seen in eastern europe in the mid-1940s in china in 1949 and then in korea during the korean war when north korea invaded the south communism was again seen to be on the rise in vietnam a country in southeast asia and uh, in 1954 the vietnamese communists the independence movements in vietnam Uh, defeated the French who'd been in charge there for many years at the Battle of Dien Bien Phu. And the country was subsequently divided into two, North Vietnam and South Vietnam. South Vietnam was defended and supported uh, financially by America, and North Vietnam Uh, was supported by the Soviet Union, by Russia. For many years, for the best part of 10 years, America would send money, send medical supplies, send military advice to try and defend South Vietnam against the communists and to prevent communism spreading. It's a very long story, but essentially America was seeing that communism was not going to be halted by financial aid alone, by military advice alone, and they entered the war uh, in 1964, sending troops on the ground. Nine years later, the United States would be essentially defeated, they would leave Vietnam on the signing of the Paris Peace Accords. And one of the questions we had from the student was, you know, why essentially did America lose the Vietnam War? And this is the part of the story that we never fully got to. And we're going to start by looking at a range of different factors that led to the America being defeated in this war. What was an incredible defeat in many ways, because many people would have thought in 1963-64 that America could never lose to Uh, the Vietnamese, a country that in terms of their economic might and their military might were nowhere near the Americans. And we're going to start by talking to Mr Patterson a little bit about the internal factors, the events and the things that were going on inside Vietnam that might have led to America ultimately losing the Vietnam War.
3: Um, So yeah, in Vietnam you've got two completely different ways of fighting. Um, The USA, as Mr Eikostom has said, um, They are all based on power, superior technology, kind of um, more, basically. Um, One of the early things, one of the first things they do in 1964 is they bomb Vietnam. It's called Operation Rolling Thunder. Um, And during this period, they drop more bombs on Vietnam than had ever been dropped in the history of the world up to that point. So it's just huge military kind of superiority added to that, they begin to send in soldiers who start to do these search and destroy missions. Um, If anyone plays Call of Duty, that will be familiar. Um, And it's basically the same thing. You go into a village, you search for enemy soldiers, and then you destroy the village. Sometimes they were called Zippo raids after the lighters that the Americans would use to burn down the sort of huts and burn down the home. These tactics are, in some ways, they are quite successful in that they kill thousands and thousands of Viet Cong communist Vietnamese soldiers, Um, but on the other hand they create a huge amount of hatred towards America. You know, if you're a farmer that has nothing to do with this war and an American plane has just blown up your fields and an American soldier has come and burned down your house, you're going to hate America, even if you didn't before the soldiers came. So on the one hand, very successful, You're killing lots of enemy soldiers, but on the other hand, you are really losing the sort of propaganda war. And America becomes incredibly unpopular in Vietnam because of this. And Mr. Eikostom is going to talk a little bit about what Americans thought of these tactics as well, because it's not particularly popular in America either. On the other side, you've got the Viet Cong, who are fighting a very different war. They focus on what is known as guerrilla tactics. So sudden attacks, hit and run attacks, ambushes. The Viet Cong are incredibly good at using the jungle to their advantage. So a lot of American soldiers wouldn't see the communist that kills them. It would just be a bullet out of the bushes, it would be a booby trap, um, what were known as punji traps, I think. Um, So things like uh, poisonous snakes, um, spike pits, um, trip wires, all sorts. So they would use the jungle to their advantage. Now this doesn't kill that many American soldiers, but what it does do is it makes the American soldiers terrified and creates this really sort of um, paranoid group of soldiers. The American troops are in Vietnam. Um, and again, it just makes the war incredibly unpopular. You get lots of American soldiers being sent back to America, having lost legs, having lost friends, and they've barely even seen the enemy. So you get this idea of, well, they're not winning the war. How can they win the war? By 1968, the Viet Cong changed these tactics a little bit, and they do what is called the Tet Offensive. They launch this massive attack on America um, and on South Vietnam. For the American soldiers, they'd sort of thought they were winning. They thought that they'd killed so many Viet Cong, so many communist Vietnamese, um, that the war was almost over. Suddenly, 1968, huge attack, hundreds of thousands of soldiers involved. About 300 US troops are killed a week in 1968, so it's this huge escalation of fighting. And this terrifies America, scares the people back home, scares the soldiers even more, and it scares the politicians, who are now having to spend $30 billion a year fighting in Vietnam, which is an insane amount of money in the 60s. Eventually... America's tactics change. America goes through several um, presidents in this time. Eventually, in 1969, Richard Nixon decides what we're going to do is we will start giving money to Vietnamese capitalists. It's called Vietnamization. We will get South Vietnam to fight the communists. It will save American lives, it will save America's reputation, and it will stop communism but this does not work. America starts to bomb neighbouring countries because their supplies are coming into the country from places like Laos, places like Cambodia, and these two countries suffer terribly, even though they're not involved in the war at all. Um, And again, this has a huge knock-on effect on um, popularity of the American government and on the popularity of the war, which I think Mr. Eichelson is going to talk about now. America on the battlefield, arguably, would not have lost
0: this war. The Viet Cong tactics and the American tactics almost created some kind of stalemate. And I think it could be argued that the war was actually lost maybe on the home front in terms of the reaction to all the events in Vietnam. Um, Now the war itself initially was not necessarily overwhelmingly popular, but certainly the vast majority of people in America support, the American people supported the war. But over time, as things started to become grimmer in Vietnam, as the body count rose, people's opinions started to change. To start with, the anti-war movement was largely built by uh, students and people with links to the civil rights campaigns that were going on at the time in the mid-1960s. But as we get into 1967, and crucially in that year of 1968, with the Tet Offensive, as Mr. Patterson mentioned, we see a change. We start to see more and more people come out into the streets in protest. Particularly, we start to see Vietnam veterans for the first time. Uh, sort of join their voice to the anti-war movement. And that becomes a very powerful symbol uh, to people um, uh, back in America, the people who they kind of almost put above on a pedestal, above all others, the veterans themselves, as being against the war. Um, In 1968, with the Tet Offensive, it became clear that America, for the first time, maybe, quite possibly, wasn't going to win this war. In fact, they may even be starting to lose it. This was the first television war, the first war that was shown every evening. On America's television sets. At the time there was only three or four TV channels, you know, tens of millions of people would sit down and actually see on their TV screens the kind of things that Mr. Patterson was talking about, the search and destroy missions, the combat going on, thinking about their own sons, their fathers, uh, their siblings out there in Vietnam, risking their lives for a cause that people started to question whether or not it was worth fighting for anymore. And famously in 68, only, only a month or so after the Tet Offensive, uh, Walter Cronkite, who was known to be uh, the, the most trusted man in America, essentially, at the time he was referred to, he was a TV newscaster. And he actually said, maybe it's time to negotiate. Maybe it's time to admit that the war cannot be won out there and to look for an honourable peace, to maybe try and find a way out of it. And uh, President Johnson, who was president at the time, is, is, is supposed to have said that Cronkite might have just lost him America, basically just lost him to people's support. Um And in 1968, President Johnson um, steps down, he decides he's not gonna run again for office. At the Democrat convention when they were deciding who was going to be the next presidential candidate for the Democratic Party, there were riots on the streets in Chicago, uh, people kind of fighting with the National Guard, uh, protesting against the war. And then President Nixon comes in in 1969. And as Mr. Patterson mentioned, he comes in with a new policy of Vietnamization, a way of kind of maybe getting America out of the war slowly but surely, reducing its role over time. He was looking for peace with honor, he talked about. He didn't want to just quit. He wanted to kind of find a a reasonable, rational and negotiated peace with North Vietnam. But this would take time. And for some people, it wasn't quick enough. The anti-war movement persisted. When Nixon widened the war in 1970 with the bombing of Cambodia and Laos, as Mr. Patterson said, there were further protests, most famously at Kent State University in 1970, when four American students were shot dead. Uh, by, by the Ohio National Guard. Four Americans killed in America, standing up against their government. This could not go on. And ultimately, you've got to remember that if politicians want to execute a war, they need to have the people, for the most part, on their side, because politicians, presidents, congresspeople need to win elections. And they can't win elections if they don't have the people supporting them. And therefore, the Republican Party and Nixon were moving towards finding some kind of peace settlement. Henry Kissinger, who was um, President Nixon's Secretary of State, was conducting secret negotiations for many, many years. This is at the same time that President Nixon was embroiled in the Watergate scandal, which is a whole other story, which found his presidency being pulled down and the kind of the corruption at the heart of government and the perception of government, the mistrust of government, uh, further hampered his policies in Vietnam. Ultimately, by 1973, The Paris Peace Accords were signed, Kissinger's negotiations came to a conclusion which meant that South Vietnam would remain South Vietnam and that North Vietnam would remain North Vietnam. Essentially the American troops would leave, the prisoners would be released and the war it seemed wasn't really fought for anything because nothing really changed all the way from 1954 where it started. So with that, the Vietnam War, or at least it seemed the Vietnam War had come to a close with American troops leaving in 1973 um, after the signing of the Paris Peace Accords. But the story doesn't end there. Uh, Mr. Patterson, can you take us up to the
3: final conclusion, I suppose, of the Vietnam War? Um, yeah, so the kind of the deal had been that America would um, pull out its soldiers, um, which they do in 1973, but Nixon and his kind of replacement, um, President Ford, had both said that they would keep sending South Vietnam money and keep sending South Vietnam supplies. They basically promised to support them. But the American government, the Senate, um, basically refuses to do this. Ford doesn't really try too hard to make sure it gets done. But South Vietnam feel very much kind of abandoned and alone. And North Vietnam can see this. They see that South Vietnam is incredibly weak. So the peace only really lasts um, about a year. And by 1974, North Vietnamese soldiers, communist soldiers, have slowly started taking over um, parts of South Vietnam. By 1975, the capital of South Vietnam, Saigon, is completely surrounded. And there is a huge amount of panic in the city. People are terrified of the communists. Um, Anyone that has helped the American government thinks that they are probably going to be executed if the communists manage to take over. Um, You've got women who have sort of had relationships with American soldiers, who have children with American soldiers, are terrified that they are going to be killed, they are going to be rounded up, they are going to be uh, murdered, essentially. And the American embassy in Saigon ends up completely surrounded by civilians who are desperate desperate to get out of the city before it falls to the communists. Um, there's also a safe house, a CIA safe house that people find out about and they also surround that, desperate to get help. Um, and to be fair, the Americans do help, they do what they can. So people begin to be helicoptered out of the city and taken to American ships. And in the end, about 130,000 people are taken out of Saigon, which is it, it is incredible. But it is mass chaos, huge panic. And in 75, Saigon, the communists march into Saigon and pretty easily take over the city. And that's it. Vietnam becomes united again as a communist country. Um, The mass panic, the, the fear of executions never really happens. The communists don't really execute thousands and thousands of thousands of people but they do kill some people that are um, sort of particularly um, well known to have helped the americans so that's it the the americans they definitely lose the war on all fronts it it, it looks bad they've lost a capitalist ally the communists have won have taken over all of vietnam And the numbers involved are quite sort of crazy. About 58,000 Americans died. Um, About 220,000 South Vietnamese soldiers died. 800,000 communist soldiers died in the war. Um, But probably more horrifying than all of that, about 2 million civilians died during this war. A lot of that was through sort of American tactics and through the communist tactics, which were brutal as well. Um, Not only that, but more than uh, one and a half million civilians died in neighbouring countries in Cambodia and Laos. So the Vietnam War had a huge effect on sort of Southeast Asia. Cambodia became communist. I'm not sure about Laos, but Cambodia fell to communism as well. So this idea of domino theory looked like it was happening. And just a hugely significant war, a war that is kind of sometimes thought of as America's sort of forgotten war. People don't talk about the Vietnam War but that's slowly changing. So to kind of ask the final
0: question then, if I was to kind of pin you down and say, right, okay, and this is never a kind of good way to do with a historian asking those kind of questions, but was it the tactics of the Viet Cong, the North Vietnamese? Was it the tactics of America? Was it the anti-war movement? Or was it sort of the impact of the media, do you think? that ultimately meant that America did not achieve their aims in Vietnam, did not contain communism, ultimately lost the war?
3: Um, Yeah, I would say impact to the media is certainly important. But um, the thing that people often talk about is this idea of winning hearts and minds. You can only win a war if you've won the hearts and minds of the people who you are fighting for. And I think America completely fails to do that. They fail to convince Vietnamese people that they're there fighting for the good of Vietnam. And they fail to convince the American people back home that this war is a war worth fighting. I think it's that failure um, that kind of loses them the war.
0: And it's ultimately that, that lack of control of the of the narrative. If you go back to World War One or World War Two, it was much, much easier to control the information. It was easier to control what it was that the people back home would see and understand what the story of the war was. And Vietnam was reported by people without censorship, essentially. And the Americans were seeing the war as it was being played out. And ultimately... Um, you're right, that kind of costs them that ability to to win the hearts and minds of the American people and to keep them on side as the death toll continue to mount. Okay, that brings us to the end, I think, of the story of uh, the Vietnam War, I suppose, and uh, why America uh, ultimately lost. Uh, Year 10 students will be studying this next year, so you had a bit of a a spoiler, I suppose, there as well.
1: Um, Just to say about studying Vietnam, it sounds like such an alien place to us and a country that maybe has very... limited significance and it's just a part of history Vietnam's actually like the the 15th most populous country on the planet it's got like 95 million people in it it's it's a a huge country it's got real significance in the world even today so if you think it's a country that you don't come across too often and we're just studying it in history actually it's really has got some significance
0: And, and nowadays it's opening up a little bit more isn't it i mean it's not like your north korea your communist north korea which is very much closed off to the outside world vietnam is a bit of a tourist hotspot isn't it for quite a lot of people these days
1: yeah and it's um yeah it exports quite a few um crucial minerals to the world globally economic markets. I think it, its main export is, well, I think it's oil, if I'm correct.
0: There you go. There you go, indeed. Right, folks. Okay, so uh, that was Vietnam. And next, we're going to take on a slightly different new feature. It's the 90-second challenge. How long do we have? How long do we have? How long do we have? 90. How long do we need? How long do we need? 90. How long do we have? How long do we have? 90 seconds. 90
3: seconds. What a challenge. What a
0: challenge. Okay, so the 90 second challenge works like this. Every single week uh, one um, one of the teachers will set another teacher a challenge. Essentially they have been given in advance a topic, so in this case Mr Lawton was given a topic in advance, one that wouldn't necessarily be in his comfort zone, it would be outside of geography, so each week he maybe would do history or languages, I might do geography or languages or something like that, and he's going to be given 90 seconds essentially to try his very best to sum up this topic and say as much as he can to explain it to you and to us. So, Mr. Lawton, are you ready? Um, Yeah. So, Mr. Lawton, you've got 90 seconds to tell us everything there is possible to know about the Crusades. On your marks, get set, go.
1: So, when? uh, 1095 to 1571, split up into three Crusades, or if you speak to other historians, eight Crusades, who was involved in it, Pope Urban II, he gave his equivalent to a papal bull, called upon the night classes, those people who've gone out there killing people uh, to earn their rights in society, and gave them an option to go out there and remove their sins, and if they go and take back Jerusalem and go and kill other people, they can wipe that away from the South. It was their equivalent of populism that we're seeing today. It was pretty much Christianity versus Islam, but at the same time, Jewish people in the Rhineland got persecuted along the way. Uh, where did it take place? Um, all the way from the British Isles to the Holy Lands, which is the areas such as Syria and Iraq today. Um, it was in the Middle East, some people would say there, um, as well as the Mongolians coming in later on who were for some reason confused with uh, outlandish uh, christians uh what was going on there it was a whole war uh from the popes uh the first was a success um uh, which everybody thought that then meant that it would always work so they had other ones that went out there they weren't so much a success uh why to try and get uh, jerusalem back uh, for salvation um why did they stop uh, because of um, the Protestant Reformation, really, and Martin Luther and all of that, and the lack of authority of the popes, and how did they do it all with vessels and ships, and they went through the Mediterranean uh, via Sicily a lot of the time.
0: Fantastic, Mr Lawton. Um, let's have a little think then about uh, your 90-second challenge and how well you did. Now, I must admit, oh. I'm personally no expert on the Crusades myself, and I did give you one of the most challenging topics, so it's a huge span of time, so many different uh, people involved, it's incredibly convoluted and confusing. I really did start off, I think at the tire level of difficulty. Mr. De Salvo first. I mean, how well do you think he did in terms of combating this incredible challenge?
2: Well, fair play to Mr. Lawton. I feel that, you know, there was quite a lot of information he was trying to give us. I kind of got a bit lost um, until he mentioned the word Sicily. Um, but uh, <laughs> um, yeah, a couple of things that I will remember from studying history myself um, many years ago, but um yeah, I think we lacked a bit of clarity. Sorry. It's 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 the part and parcel
0: of the ninety second challenge, you see, trying to synthesize all this information. Mr. Patterson, uh, you're a noted
3: scholar on all things crusades. hmm Um yeah, I I was very impressed, Mr. Lawton. I thought you covered the basics. Although um failure to mention Richard Lionheart just um heartbreaking the, the the legendary figure of the crusades whether he was any good or not or hadin his great nemesis but other than that i was um yeah supremely impressed john the floor
1: i i'm 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 not going to lie i had so many different characters and protagonists when i was researching the crusades and it turns out that apparently we're focusing on richard the lionheart quite a bit and yet he's a very small part of a lot of other stuff. It seems, yeah, it seems um, to all get, I, I love the Mongols part coming in. The The Mongolians were like the Armageddon from the East. And uh, at one point they thought it was some Christian guy. Instead, some like rogue priest was coming back and then they found out, oh no, it's guys on horses.
0: Well, I'll be honest. I'm, I think I'm guilty of that myself, because I didn't know or hardly know anything at all about the kind of impact of, of the Mongol horde and like kind of the Khans or whatever on, the, the crusade story and you had it going up to sort of the 1500s as well which again I'm, I've always kind of seen the crusades as being in around Richard the Lionheart essentially.
1: Yeah well um, lots of the things I was because you gave me this topic yesterday to have a research and lots of things ah. I, I read uh, where were saying how um, the crusades aren't even supposed to have stopped them because a crusade is a term that goes all the way through to religious war. And it. actually, it's a reflection of what we're seeing in the, the Middle East today. If you could say that there were crusades going on there in a different way.
0: I think you're going to give uh, one of us a topic and we're going to see how difficult it actually is. What have you uh, got in mind for next week and who's going to be doing it?
1: I was going to ask uh, Mr. Patterson. Uh, he would be able to look into the topic of um, seismic hazards Seis- or earthquakes
0: as other people you, you can hear the see a pin drop as you said that there. Um.
3: Hazard <laughs> Is that um Aidan Hazard's brother?
1: Uh, yes, I believe yeah. so. It's, it's Eden Hazard,
3: Thorgan
0: Hazard and Seismic Seismic hazard. hazard. Okay, good. Right, easy. So look forward to 90 seconds of Mr Patterson talking about seismic hazards next week that was the 90 second challenge how long do we have how long do we have 90 90 how long do we need how long do we need 90 90 how long do we have, 90. 90. How, long do we have? how long do we have 90 seconds 90 seconds what a challenge what a challenge so that brings us to the end of part 3 coming up in a few seconds geography corner and part 4 Welcome back to part four. It's time to pass over to Mr. Lawton for Geography Corner.
1: Hi everyone, so um, this week I'm going to give us uh, three different sections um, again, as I've done in previous weeks. The first one's on the urban heat island effect, given that at the moment we've got such glorious weather and I live in uh, the centre of a big urban area I thought I'd bring this to your attention and also uh, you guys are the first generation, and we are as well, that have lived through over 50% of the planet living in urban areas and by the time we get to 2050, uh, probably 80% of the planet's going to live in urban areas. So what is an urban heat island Well, pretty much because of the natural landscape of areas being changed due to urbanisation and cities growing, Um, with the ecology changing and the surfaces changing of the planet, it's creating a climatic anomaly. And this phenomenon that occurs, it means that cities are invariably warmer than the areas around them. Um, so the sorts of things that influence that are the surrounding ecology. So if you are in a city that's surrounded by a forest, instead sort of let's say a, a desert like Mazdar City um, out in the Middle East, uh, you would you would have a much warmer city than the area around it. So if we think of somewhere in Brazil like Brasilia, um, there the city is a lot warmer than the, the forest around it. It also depends on the size in terms of population and area and it depends on the infrastructure design so if you've got a grid uh, sequence pattern like you would see in america compared to somewhere like let's say in the uk um, you will see that um, due to the grid system that actually reduces the amount of air that can flow in between the buildings and therefore also increases the temperature of the urban area uh, and then on top of that what we have is these cities made of concrete and tarmac which are very good at retaining heat uh, they absorb it and then they can radiate it at night so we see massive changes in the temperature of urban areas compared to if they were in their natural form before uh, between the daytime and the nighttime and just to put this into context for you um if you look at london um london can be two degrees warmer that's two degrees celsius warmer than the surrounding rural landscape instead so uh, the heat island effect has massive implications and then we start to see this impact our um, feedback systems with um, air conditioning being used by people who live in urban areas uh, which then takes up electricity which is carbon emissions um, and then leads to global warming and then um, means that the cities become warmer again and therefore more air conditioning is used um, so it's a big issue that will affect a lot of us in the future moving, moving forward and um, one way that we can get around this is something that you see at BOA um, and it's what you see and um, the universities around us but um, green roofs and uh, moving to more green landscapes inside the cities and Birmingham was one of the pioneers of this uh, if any of you know the Edgbaston Road going north and south and many of the A roads around uh, Birmingham you'll know that they've got these lovely procession trees in the middle of them um, which was actually originally designed to be taken out when the traffic demand got big enough, uh, but since um, we've like awakened, awoken uh, environmentally, uh, they've left them in, which is really good for greening the city. My second little part takes us away from more human geography, and uh, even though both of these are in the grey area of where human geography and physical geography combine, but I'm going to look into traffic cascades, and it's something that... Um, Year 10s who are plowing their way through the wick should be well aware of, um, it's one of my favorite videos uh, that this is relating to, How Walls Change Rivers which I think everybody in the department has been subjected to and uh, now everybody in year 10 has. But it's a fantastic little piece that will help you out with um, living world as a topic, but also biology paper two, And it relates to something that you start to learn about in primary school, which is food webs and food chains. And if we break down the term itself, trophic cascades, um, as a topic area trophic means nutrients or energy and cascade meaning falling on in a sequence down something as a result almost like a knock-on domino effect and uh, the main example that this can be seen in the way best way to visualize it is uh, through gray walls in Yellowstone National Park in America Yellowstone National Park being actually um, found in a caldera cooking pot of um, a supervolcano which has uh, been subjected to many dodgy films being made about it erupting and it being the end of the world but inside there at the moment it's a lovely uh, environment uh, and in 1926 um, gray wolves were actually hunted into being removed from the ecosystem at the time and the food webs and change and in that time um other animals were able to develop and flourish without uh, these predators and landscape and what happened is um they kind of thought, well, we've hunted them out of existence. So we're going to reintroduce them uh, into uh, this ecosystem to kind of um, send it back to how it should be. And uh, as a result of the reindu- reintroduction of the wolves in 1995, um, they obviously began to kill elk or deer in the local landscape. But then, because of this, um, it wasn't just that initial impact that then impacted the rest of the food chain. It Changed the behaviour of the deer that actually lived there, they kind of avoided valleys, they started to um, isolate themselves away from these open environments where predators could get to them. And uh, that meant that as a result of them moving away, the trees, which usually were stripped down and weren't allowed to grow very high because of the deer picking away at them, uh, they began to grow, some uh, grew to five times their size. And then as a result of the trees growing, the birds, in the area started to increase. Um, animals such as beavers started to increase as well, creating their own little micro habitats, uh, forming dams and uh, little bowls, vol- uh, and rodent creatures started to grow and, uh, and actually develop there. Um, and then because The wolves were back, they also started to kill coyotes in the area or the predators as well. Um, So that meant more rabbits came along. Um, And then as a result of things like rabbits, um, eagles began to prey on them and the carcasses of anything that was left from the wolves. And then in turn, because of the berries on the trees as well, uh, more bears started to appear and they killed some deer and they kind of like compounded the impacts. Of all of um, the walls appearing so we start to see all these knock-on effects but the real magical uh, moment starts to occur when.
0: Oh sorry I didn't want to interject the magical moment you're about to describe there actually but um, is this, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but is this a little bit like what happened in Australia when they introduced rabbits for the first time or am I completely
1: along the road no, no it's a, it, it, there is a trophic cascade that occurs there but this is one way to going back to the norm what there is that's an invasion of an alien yes. species and similar it, to what we experienced with um Oxford uh, ragwort and a Japanese knotweed as plants in this country which many of our students will see signs for at their train stations because if you see these alien species which are are not which the ecosystem and the environment is not used to, they can invade and um, they can completely destroy and destabilise what was there originally. So, for example, if a train station has a Japanese knotweed anywhere near it, uh, they will shut it down and clear it out as quickly as possible because it's that strong, it will grow that quickly, uh, it will start to wrap around the train lines and become really disrupted.
0: So, yeah, because the the rabbit situation was because they just didn't have any... Predators, essentially, and that's why they able yeah. to take over, yeah.
1: Yeah, um, or you could liken it to uh, the cat that was introduced, uh, where the dodos were found, and the dodos had never seen a cat before, so uh, they didn't run away from the cat, and the cat killed them more <laughs> than it killed the dodos. And hence we have the trophic cascade that occurred in um, Yellowstone ends with the walls actually changing the rivers. Now, they didn't go along and eat uh, or drink, uh, lots of water or eat the river banks or anything like that so they didn't do anything strange in that sense but because the walls had actually caused everything else to happen and the forest had developed and all of a sudden we were seeing these birches and these lovely trees oaks settling in and developing even more so than usual they stabilized the banks they stabilized the landscape and that then meant as a result of the ground being firmer Um, There was less erosion taking place in the rivers, uh, on the outside of our riverbends, just to remind you your terms. And uh, that meant that the riverbends, the meanders, were not able to migrate as much. They weren't able to move as much around the landscape and they changed the behaviour of the rivers. So it's a fantastic example of a trophic cascade in full flow and uh, this dominoing effect. Uh, through our ecosystems. One final uh, section which is really short is just about statistics. Um, at the moment I I love statistics inside geography uh, and there are so many statistics out there at the moment with regards to the coronavirus let's say or many other different things and uh, even inside citizenship you'll come across lots of statistics inside manifestos and things like that but can I please Remind people to ask questions of whatever statistics you've got, not sit there and crazily start shouting questions at a number, but to actually think about what is the scale here? What is the actual statistic that I am reading? What is this based upon? Is the scale going up log- logarithmically? Are the numbers going 5, 10, 1,000, 10,000, but the distance between them is actually equal? Um, Are the numbers with a little star by them? Are they saying in hospital overall you've got to question these things? Otherwise, the amount of numbers we have can seem to be contradictory to each other or don't make any sense whatsoever. You really do have to look at statistics and not be negative with them, but just make sure that you all understand how that statistic that's being shown to you is being defined, whether it's through a graph or the sheer way that it's been actually collected to begin with and sometimes it's very difficult to be certain of these things so please don't accept statistics at face value and uh, appreciate them in their entirety. Uh,
0: A sombre warning there from Mr Lawton to finish on uh, in these troubled times. So that brings us to an end to part four we'll be back in just a moment with part five. Welcome back to part five and it's my distinct pleasure to uh, pass it on uh, live, uh, well, it's always been live, hasn't it, um, to uh, Mr DeSalvo um, to talk to us a little bit about traditions and superstitions in language liaisons.
2: Thank you. I will do um, some training on how to pronounce this word at some point as well, please. Um uh, okay. So um, obviously we've uh, just finished with the Easter celebrations and um, I know with some of my classes we managed to discuss what um, is differently done in France and Spain or Spanish and French-speaking countries Um, and I suppose the most, um, well, surprising fact for uh, some of you is that there aren't any easter eggs uh, for example in spain um so there isn't such a market for you know chocolate eggs and um the spanish have their own treats which look like um, you know a bit of a fried bread covered in uh, sugar or honey um so that is one thing for example and um, if you go to Spain during the Holy Week, you'll see quite a lot of processions going through various city main roads. And normally, in these processions, you find different people dressed in various um, kind of religious items. And um, I think the most kind of confusing ones are the men wearing pointy hats uh, because they normally remind us of other figures and um, but there's also some women dressed all in black called the mourners and they're supposed to actually enact um, you know the suffering of women whilst Jesus was carried towards um, well being crucified unfortunately Um, but um, as these processions go ahead as well there's also a lot of um, Uh, floats being carried on people's shoulders and there's candles on these floats and they move quite unsteadily at times Um, but a funny thing that happens during those processions is the children have competitions on who's going to get the biggest um, wax uh, bowls because when the float um, holders arrest every now and then the kids all just go into the floats and try to get you know a lot of wax melting from the candles and then by the end of the procession who's ever got obviously the biggest wax ball um wins um so that happens throughout holy week um in france it's a bit different they've got chocolate eggs easter egg hunts hunts are a thing and but one thing that is a bit different is the um easter bells the kids are told that the bells from churches remain quiet from uh, Maundy Thursday. Um, It is obviously for morning reasons but um, kids are told that the Easter bells are actually going to uh, the Vatican to visit the Pope and get blessed and then uh, that's why they're quiet because they're actually not in the country before they make the journey back um, in time for Easter Sunday. And one thing that is strange about um, religious traditions in a country like france in a country like spain is that all the time all of these religious um, kind of customs but also beliefs are accompanied by many many superstitions and um, which are completely you know the nemesis of being catholic or religious generally anyway um, i think we are familiar with some of the most common superstitions around the world you know like fearing um, I don't know, Friday the 13th, for example, or, um, you know, maybe not wearing certain uh, colour items for whatever occasion. And some of these actually are common to uh, Spain, probably mainly, although in Sp- in Spain, it's Tuesday the 13th that brings bad luck and not Friday the 13th, uh, which has to do with the god of war, um, the Roman god of war. Called Mars or Martes in uh, Spanish. So Martes, being also Tuesday, means that Tuesday the thirteenth is um, an unlucky day in the calendar, um, and you should not buy a yellow clothes for a baby because yellow is linked to the um, to sulfur. So therefore, the devil. So it's all quite evil. So you should not be wearing yellow, also for a job interview or like an exam, and. Um, as uh, a lot of, uh, of our students are into obviously musical theatre or acting or performing in general anyway, and they must be aware that uh, the Spanish don't say break a leg, um, but they actually say the equivalent of a lot of poo. And they say mucha mierda, which, um, yeah, unfortunately there isn't an explanation to this, um, as to many other um, saying in the theatre world. Um, do you think
1: we should? Um, do you think we should start saying this expression to students before their performances at Bower?
2: So definitely, <laughs> yes. I think. Oh,
1: um, yeah. Or should we just uh, save yeah. it for afterwards and just put that in the review?
2: <laughs> um, just to leave you with some French superstitions, because I've got one for the historians as well, by the way. So, Mr. Patis, if you could uh, stay awake for this bit as well, You should never use the same match to light three cigarettes.
3: Miss Patterson, uh, I believe this comes from the First World War, and a sniper would shoot the third person. Correct. Would okay. you like to expand on that? I, uh, so I saw this in
1: Enemy at the Gate, great film. Uh, and, Jude Law. Yeah. Yes, very good top film. top film.
3: Yeah, so the sniper would see the first see the match be lit see the first person, see the second person, then fire on the third person. That's correct. Um,
2: As a result of that, then it is considered to be bad luck to use the same match um, for lighting three cigarettes. Okay, so another uh, superstition that uh, the French um, hold is uh, about not having bread upside down so if you've got a baguette or like a loaf of bread um on the table you should never place it um upside down and um, um it apparently stems from the fact that um uh, I can't remember what you call the person who does the um executions uh publicly an executor i suppose um they, would never want to run out of bread, so the bakers would place their bread upside down to kind of keep it aside and because people didn't want to um, annoy him, uh, they would not uh, buy that particular baguette or loaf of bread because it was reserved for the executor and nowadays it's bad luck to put your bread upside down. Right, the um, last and probably more interesting superstition that the French hold is about spilling salt on the table uh, so, you should not, uh, should try not to spill salt on the table. So, if you are asked to pass the salt, you just place it next to the person that has asked for it rather than actually give it to them. Um, so, this superstition originates from a long time ago because salt was uh, considered to be very. Um, precious and it was essential for conserving food for example and it was also then used as a payment and this is the fun fact for you guys and the word salary in french salaire uh, in latin salarium actually means a ration of salt because um, people were paid using salt uh, in the old well, there you go. So um, actually spilling salt, which means then obviously wasting salt, uh, is considered to be bad luck. And last fun fact is also that in the famous Last Supper fresco from Leonardo da Vinci, um, actually Judas is spilling salt on the table. Very topical for
0: Easter there, Mr. De Salvo.
2: Yes. So that's, um, that's it from the language uh, liaison. And I will not sing l'italiano for Christian.
0: uh, uh, That that brings us to the end of of part five. We'll be back in a few moments uh, with the final part, part six. Okay, welcome back to part six. Uh, Your questions, keep them coming in, keep sending in your questions by email or by the Google form that's been sent out over the past few days and weeks. Uh, Just a couple of questions uh, this week to get our teeth into. Mr. DeSalvo, sadly, as he said before, still not singing. Uh, we will continue to uh, bang that drum. Um, but the first question that we're going to go to is, what is your favourite uh, part of history? What's your most kind of, uh, your go-to part of history? And that's not necessarily directed just to me and Mr. Patterson, but uh, Mr. DeSalvo and Mr. Lawton can jump in on this one as well. What part of history do they always find the most interesting? Mr. Patterson, we'll start with you.
3: It's so mine, without a doubt, is the sort of the beginning of the Roman Empire and the sort of fall of the Roman Republic. So uh, if anyone, uh, any of my students know that I adore like individuals, I'm always going on about kind of big man history or big woman history, these these individuals that change the world. Um, and that kind of period of time, the sort of um, I don't know, the last hundred years before Christ, um, You've got like Julius Caesar, you've got Cicero, you've got uh, Brutus, Pompey. If you go back a little bit earlier, you've got people like um, Catalina. Um, All these kind of just incredibly sort of mental and egotistical and kind of larger than life people. Um, And they just all happen to exist at the same time. And they're all fighting each other and they're all kind of... um, stabbing each other in the back and it's just very sort of Game of Thronesy and cut throat and just fantastic. Um, if anyone is interested there are some really good books on that by a guy Robert Harris and um, they're sort of like historical fiction and um, the first one I think is called Imperium uh, but it's an amazing period, uh, there's a great tv show on it as well on Netflix called Rome. Fantastic. Um... Mr DeSalvo, do you
0: have
2: a, a a time slot that you would always go to? Um, I'd say just after the creation of Adam and Eve, it seemed that the world was, you know, a little bit calmer back then. You know, it was quite quiet. Yeah, I think that, that would be mine at the moment.
0: Not want to narrow it down, but there we are. Um, Mr Lawton?
2: Um, I will probably go
1: uh post-world war Two, um and i must admit it relates kind of to what mr patterson was saying about how he likes these big figures in history i actually like post-world war Two because um of the availability of documentation surrounding it i i think it's a, a period of time where uh, lots more people were literate on the planet. There's a lot more records of things and we can find out about the smaller stories. And as I was doing my research um, for the Crusaders, actually, um, uh, the Crusades, I came across a uh, an historian, who was written a book called Crusaders. And um, inside his book, he has these major protagonists that he tells the story of the crusades through but in the third part about richard the lionheart's actual crusade um is based upon a lady that he talks about so engendered uh, crusades and uh, uh, she she like her little story came about because her brother ended up being a monk so when she got back home to yorkshire was where she was from originally she went on a gap year out to uh out to Jerusalem. And while she was there, like all the battles kicked off and she fought a little bit, ended up getting enslaved for a couple of years, eventually took a ship back to England. And then her brother sat down and wrote all her story out. But I love those little stories like that. I think that's class. But she's one of very few from that period where I think post-World War II, We can find out all those little stories and about how much has been covered up by the big man, and then it comes out later on what's happening. I think that's crazy. So that's why I like uh, post World War Two. I
0: I was almost thinking there for a moment that you were being won over by the Crusades, and that was going to be your your new favourite part of history. But maybe maybe in time that will happen. For me, it's got to be the Age of Discovery, or anything to do with when people are going out into the unknown and that kind of clash of cultures when you have. People of so kind of different life experiences um, meeting, and and sometimes obviously this is a tragic story. The Age of Discovery, when we look at kind of the Spanish conquistadors going to the Inca and Aztec empires and absolutely devastating them, um, but also looking at kind of when the British kind of colonial ambitions in places like Australia, even um, this kind of humanity kind of getting to the horizon, not knowing what's um, you know kind of beyond that horizon, but always pushing forward, pushing forward, sometimes for benefit and many times uh, for not. But I always find that kind of fascinating, that kind of almost that that, that sort of insatiable appetite for kind of expansion, uh, sometimes for money, sometimes it's because of religion. Sometimes it's just that kind of that grab for power. Um, but yeah, I've always found that uh, sort of nugget of history the most, most fascinating. One little question, Mr. Lawton from Amber. Um, what do you think is, a, is more at risk, Antarctica from climate change or the Amazon rainforest from deforestation?
1: Um, I think that this is quite a difficult question because we think of the world system and Gaia as a complete and continuous system in the earth and uh, climate change being very much part of our carbon cycles. Um, short term, uh, the Amazon is more at risk from deforestation, but in the long term, Antarctica uh from climate change antarctica as we know it because as i in the previous episode antarctica used to be a tropical rainforest it's now a frozen desert so yeah in in the short term amazon is uh more of an impact but then obviously our uh, negative feedback loops, um, chopping down the rainforest, carbon sequestration being destroyed and this made the impact on the global circulation of ocean currents, Um, the carbon sinks being lost, yeah, um, it will all compound itself. So yeah, um, I would say Amazon in the short term.
0: And with that we come finally to the end of another episode of the HD Lockdown Pod. Um, I'm just going to say a quick farewell uh, to Mr. Patterson. So long. And uh, arrivederci, Mr. DeSalvo. Presto, bye. And uh, so long, farewell, Mr. Lawton. Bye. See you all again soon, folks. Bye.
3: Important question. How in God's name do you spell seismic?